0: you're listening to Well Now, Slate's podcast about health and wellness. I'm Maya Feller.
1: And I'm Kavita Patel. For most people, the name Abraham Flexner doesn't mean much. But for me and thousands of physicians that went to medical school in the United States, our entire education was shaped by this man more than a century ago.
2: I didn't know about Abraham Flexner until I was in residency. And like so many others, like he was incredibly revered and respected.
0: That's Dr. Uche Blackstock. Her latest book, Legacy, dives deep into the history of the Flexner Report.
2: This was a report in 1910, commissioned by the American Medical Association and the Carnegie Mellon Foundation, and essentially they commissioned Abraham Flexner to assess all 155 U.S. and Canadian medical schools and to hold those schools against the criteria of like Western European schools and Johns Hopkins.
1: It provided recommendations for stricter admission standards, fully equipped labs, and other formalized protocols that made healthcare education more similar to Western European medical schools.
2: But for schools
0: that didn't have the proper funding to make these adjustments, it proved to be disastrous. At the time, there were seven majority black medical schools, many of them in the South, that came about after the Civil War, during Reconstruction. By 1905, those medical schools had trained 1,500 doctors, doctors who would go on to both service their community and mentor future generations of physicians.
2: The fact was, is that the seven historically black medical schools that existed at that time, they just didn't have the resources, the funding because of the legacy of slavery. They didn't have the huge endowments of these white medical schools. And so the report led to the closing of five out of seven of those schools.
0: Looking back on the report today, one study found that if those facilities remained open, an estimated 25 to 35,000 more Black physicians would have been trained and cared for patients throughout the years since.
1: Physicians who perhaps could have helped alleviate the impact of medicalized racism going forward. Currently, Black men have the shortest life expectancy out of any major demographic group. In our country's maternal mortality crisis, Black women and birthing people are three times more likely to die in childbirth than their white counterparts. Black babies also have the highest infant mortality rate. This was all well documented before the COVID-19 crisis, which disproportionately affected Black and brown communities.
0: Our guest this week has been thinking a lot about the Flexner Report and the tens of thousands of potential Black doctors we lost to history.
2: When I read that report, I cried because I thought about, wow, the number of patients that could have been treated, the number of students and trainees that could have been mentored, the, the research, not just in Black health, the research overall, just that brain power that could have been utilized for the betterment of, of society.
0: So this week on the show, we're tackling racism in healthcare and one physician's view on how to solve it.
1: Hey, it's Kavita. If you're looking for even more conversations around what it really means to achieve wellness, then you have to check out Embodied, the award-winning podcast from our friends at North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Each week, Embodied's award-winning reporter, Anita Rao, holds up her journalistic lens to so-called taboo topics to help answer some important questions about our bodies and our society. And nothing's off limits hear from expert guests, including strippers, historians, and psychologists, as they break down everything from the history of hookup culture, to how the self-help industry is profiting from our problems, to how a schizophrenia diagnosis can impact intimacy. If you need a place to start, I highly recommend checking out their recent episode about crying, why we do it, and why it often makes us feel better. So go ahead, follow Embodied and get new episodes every Friday, wherever you listen to Podcasts. Welcome back, you're listening to Well Now, I'm Kavita Patel. And
0: I'm Maya Feller. So there is this very real and persistent problem in helping Americans achieve wellness, right? There's a lot of structural inequities that are really baked into the medical system. People with the same health challenges, and sometimes they have the same resources, but rarely, they are treated totally differently in our healthcare system. And those divides really show up along racial lines. That's very, very stark. Our question is, how does this happen? How did it happen? And how do we actually work to fix it?
1: Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Uche Blackstock. She's an emergency medicine physician and the founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity. Their goal is to dismantle racism in healthcare by working with providers and healthcare organizations. And we're thrilled to be able to talk about her New York Times best-selling book called Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. Thank you so much, Uche, for joining us.
2: Thank you so
1: much, Kavita and Maya, for having me. All right, Lucia. let's get into it. Let's start. We are a wellness show. We're called Well Now for a reason. So we like to ask our guests, what does wellness mean to you? When I think of wellness, um, especially in terms of the work I do around
2: health equity, it's really about people being able to live full, healthy, long lives. And the fact is, is that Many people in our country, mostly black people and people of color, are not able to do that. And it it sounds like something so simple, but sadly and appallingly, it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm.
1: You really talk about it and write about the racism that splits our country, the medical system into two nations. Tell our listeners more of what that really means. Sure.
2: You know, My goal for the book and for readers of the book was to help everyone, whether or not you have like a health background or not, really for a broad audience to be able to connect the dots to why in 2024, we're seeing the statistics we're seeing, you know, so obviously the one that I think people know about a lot because it's in the mainstream media is around the black maternal mortality crisis. But when you look at like all indices of well-being, life expectancy, infant mortality, we see that along racial lines. It was really important for me to be able to explain to readers that this wasn't just about something being inherently wrong with the bodies of black people who live in this country, that really it's a matter of the environments and the systems that we live, work, pray, and love within. So the book has like history in it, how deeply rooted instances in history, um, myths that have been perpetuated about black people and black bodies remain today and actually influence the way our health professionals interact with black people when they interface with the healthcare system. And I just want to say this, like I know that most health professionals, they want to do their best and take care of their patients well. But the fact is, is that they are very much like every other person in this society. They observe all the cultural messaging through media, schools, their family, that everyone else does. Like they are not immune to carrying biases with them that will affect the way they care for their patients.
0: And I feel like in the book, you talk about this century-old report, the Flexner Report. That report actually led to the shuttering of a number of historically Black medical schools that then resulted in like a massive reduction of Black physicians. Can you explain how the history, that specific history, and the ramifications associated with it?
2: Sure. Yeah, I felt it, like it was so important to talk about the Flexner Report in this book, just because... I didn't know about Abraham Flexner until I was in residency. And like so many others, like he was incredibly revered and respected in medicine. And when I found out about this report, I was like, oh, that is really interesting. And I actually found out the report in 2020 when I read what the impact of the report was. And so this was a report in 1910, commissioned by the American Medical Association, the largest and oldest organization of physicians in the country, and the Carnegie Mellon Foundation. And essentially, they commissioned Abraham Flexner to assess all 155 U.S. and Canadian medical schools and to hold those schools against the criteria of like Western European schools and Johns Hopkins. So looking at the number of physician scientists on faculty, the quality of the laboratory facilities, admissions criteria. And so that report actually led to the closure, not just of black medical schools, but even of predominantly white medical schools, too. I just want to put that out there. But the fact was, is that the seven historically black medical schools that exist at that time. They just didn't have the resources, the funding because of the legacy of slavery. They didn't have the huge endowments of these white medical schools. And so the report led to the closing of five out of seven of those schools and leaving behind Howard and Meharry, which I have to note, still educate the most Black physicians in 2024.
1: What blew my mind kind of reading your book is that that translates to fewer Black doctors. Tell us what the impact has of having a population of the country that has nobody that looks like them tell us the impact of having fewer black doctors in care
2: you know when i read that report i i cried because i thought about wow the number of patients that could have been treated the number of students and trainees that could have been mentored the the research not just in black health the research overall just that brain power that, that that could have been you know utilized for the for the betterment of of society but we do know that when your physician is of the same racial background as you are, that it does have an impact on how you even leave that patient interaction. We actually know that Black patients get spoken over more often than any other patients. They get interrupted while they're speaking to their physicians. So they leave these interactions with a better feeling. They feel seen, heard, and valued. They're actually more likely to follow their physician recommendations. There was even a study last year in JAMA that showed that the presence of one Black primary care physician in a U.S. county improved the life expectancy for Black patients in that, that county. No, that is so, so. So it's an association. We don't. We don't know exactly. Like you know, is it direct patient care, or just because that means maybe quality of life overall for Black folks living in that county is better? I'm just saying. Like that is just so powerful. But I also do think that the way that our students and trainees are educated and trained really should prepare anyone to care for a diverse patient population. Like, yes, it would be great to have more black physicians, but I don't think that's the only solution.
0: In the book, you tell this story about the tale of two ERs. Now, as a New Yorker, I can literally see the streets. I can actually see like the entryway to both ERs. The emergency departments are so different. I want you to illustrate that for us and talk to us a little bit about your experience of going between these two vastly different worlds.
2: Part of, of Legacy is really showing my own my own journey of unlearning and relearning, and a lot of it actually happened during residency and, and beyond when I was a practicing physician. It happened when I was working in academic medicine, and I had the opportunity to work at a public hospital and a private hospital, and literally— One block apart, but just a very different experience, a different set of resources, even down to um, social work. Like there was we were so well staffed in terms of social work at the private hospital when the public hospital was the one that actually needed those resources. We were able to get follow-up appointments for our patients at the private hospital, but could not at the public hospital. And that's those are the people that needed the follow-up appointments and would often you know, talk about this whole idea of being quote-unquote lost to follow-up when it actually means like that's the system failing our patients.
0: Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how someone's zip code really plays into how they access health and then kind of what that treatment and beyond looks like. Sure.
2: Again, in the book, I talk about this because I grew up in Crown Heights. Brooklyn, which I didn't know until later on in life was a formerly redlined neighborhood. Like when I was growing up there, I was like, oh, this is so interesting. You know, we have to always go to another neighborhood to go to a grocery store. And my parents don't feel comfortable enough sending us to school in this neighborhood. And we have to drive to the closest park. You know, so there are all these revelations I was making growing up and not really being able to explain why. And then, you know, I was sort of re-educating myself, learning about the legacy of redlining, which is this policy in the 19th. That came out of the New Deal. So FDR developed these programs as a way for Americans to recover from the Great Depression. Part of that was home ownership, but what, but this one policy unfortunately led to neighborhoods being graded A, B, C, or D based on who lived in that neighborhood. If it was mostly white and affluent, A grade. Mostly racial and ethnic minorities or immigrants, D grade. And that impacted the people in those communities' ability to qualify for a federally backed mortgage or mortgage insurance. Mm. So what does that have to do with health? So the fact is, is that when you fast forward almost 100 years later, the neighborhoods that were formerly redlined are the neighborhoods that we see today with the very worst health outcomes, why is that the case? Because when people are not able to own property, when they're not able to generate wealth, when businesses don't want to come to that neighborhood, jobs don't come, what funds schools, property taxes. And so these are areas that have been chronically, chronically disinvested in. And we see the downstream outcome of that in terms of disease and illness.
1: And uh, it also leads into something that I think You also write eloquently about uh, in terms of implicit bias in research because so much of what you're describing then leads to being able to get NIH funding or even what the NIH prioritizes or how the NIH is even set up for as an example. But can you just share kind of for any listener who doesn't really understand kind of this implicit bias in research, and how that affects education, and then the way we deliver care. Give us some practical examples of how that manifests.
2: Yeah, I mean,
1: I think we saw
2: this over the last few years, even in terms of pulse oximetry. And this is something, you know, even as a practicing physician, I didn't realize that for the last... 30 years that the FDA had been aware of these inaccuracies with the pulse oximeter, which for your listeners are little machines you put at the tip of your fingers to measure your blood oxygen level. That everyone ran out and bought during COVID. Yes.
1: Well, everyone with resources.
2: Right. That's right. Right. That's correct. So they hadn't been actually tested in a diverse patient population, including patients with darker skin. And so what we discovered through these studies that were done within the last few years is that... That pulse oximeter reading often led to patients with darker skin not receiving the medications they needed because it overestimated how high their oxygen levels were. So in the beginning of the pandemic, when people were getting dexamethasone and remdesivir, patients with melanated skin were not qualifying for those medications. And ultimately, that impacted how they fared. And some people even died from that. It's not to say that those study coordinators and, you know, study leaders were being intentionally biased, but they were just sort of thinking about, you know, okay, I guess we just need to test this in people that are the majority in in, in white patients. And I was kind of taken aback the fact that as health professionals, we weren't told about this.
0: In the book, you do such a incredibly moving job of talking about implicit bias and internalized racism, right? And as a dietitian myself, I know for sure I'm not spared from internalized racism in the nutrition sphere. Talk to us a little bit about how that impacts Black physicians and kind of what it looks like when they've internalized that racism and that, you know, there's the potential to also perpetuate- Harm.
2: You know, I mentioned that at the end of my book because we're educated and trained in the same system as everyone else, you know. And so, of course, we're going to absorb the same, you know, anti-Black messaging and internalize a lot of those same biases. So, I mean, I've had patients that have told me I haven't been treated well, even by Black physicians. So, I think that we have to all really think about what are these biases that we hold, these assumptions that we make about our patients. We have to be aware of it. And I think it's not just about training, but it's about how we educate our medical students, how we train our residents. For hospitals, we need to keep track of metrics. Are there different prescribing habits among health professionals? Are one set of patients getting more likely to get opioids than others? Mm-hmm. We have to have like standardized processes and procedures, unfortunately, to mitigate these biases.
0: We're going to take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Uche Blackstock about solutions that she says will really help to ameliorate racism in healthcare and better support care for all patients. So stay tuned.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Well Now. I'm Kavita Patel.
0: And I'm Maya Feller. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Uche Blackstock and her new book, Legacy.
1: So, Uche, we talked about
0: a handful of experiences as well as the impact on racism in medicine and healthcare. As you closed out Legacy, you offered some tangible solutions. Talk to us a little bit about what they were.
2: I felt like it was very important that last chapter to be a call to action chapter, just to assign different groups, different tasks so they can feel empowered, because often people will read this and feel so incredibly overwhelmed. I actually just want to start with the people who feel overwhelmed, because I always say, just look at like what's happening hyper-locally and locally in your area. So I talk in the book about a birthing center called the Roots Birthing Center in Minneapolis. And unfortunately, Minneapolis has actually some of the very worst racial health inequities, um, some of the highest maternal mortality. And so this birthing center was founded by a black midwife And the whole mission of the birthing center is to provide dignified and respectful care to black birthing people. And in some of the preliminary data, they've shown they've been able to decrease preterm deliveries and maternal complications. And so these are like the community-based, community-centered models of care that I think will have a tremendous impact on improving health equities in our communities. So I always ask people to look around what's happening in your area. How can you volunteer? How can you donate to these efforts? Obviously, we have to task medical schools with, with doing better in terms of not just filling in the gaps about the history of medical racism, but providing context on our current health inequities and why they're worsening despite advances in innovation, research and technology. And a lot of it's because systemic racism is so deeply embedded in all aspects of our society. Mm-hmm. I also wish medical schools would provide our students with this more holistic idea of what health is, that health isn't just what happens in healthcare settings, that health is what happens at a community level.
1: Are there resources for patients to find, for example, if they're trying to find kind of culturally relevant care, can someone listening to this go to a website or someplace to find that resource? Such a
2: great question, Kavita. And, and also I want to say that, you know, often people will say, well, what can patients do to advocate for themselves? And I have an issue with that question because I feel like people shouldn't have to feel like they're going to war. <laughs> right. When they're, when it's they're... not all on the individual. Yes, especially when they're feeling they're most vulnerable. But I always want to give a shout out to there are a lot of really great, actually, Black women like efforts and resources. So there's Health in Her Hue, which was started by Ashley Wisdom, who is a public health professional. And it's a directory of culturally responsive healthcare professionals, like not just black, but of all different demographics who really are committed to providing black women and women of color with um, respectful and dignified care. So that's a directory there. And, And those health professionals go through trainings and their metrics are kept track of in real time. And that's a great directory. There's also an app called Earth I-R-T-H, started by another Black woman, the Earth app. And that is a directory of maternal health professionals who specifically want to work with, like, Black birthing people and birthing people of color. So there are, like, the, there are resources out there that, like, you know, Black women are the are creating some of the solutions. But I also want to just lift up those resources as ones that um, I've found per- helpful personally and so have others.
1: And on that notion occurring kind of like what we have to do as patients to advocate for ourselves, it shouldn't be all on us. I'll admit, Uche, I've actually helped patients of mine try to like get in through the ER and kind of bypass like an imperfect healthcare system. And that duality is when I've practiced, even with my girlfriends, you know. Of course. We'll, we'll all shout out to each other and go, anybody working in the ER at Inova Fairfax tonight? I got a friend coming in. But this, it's so sad that this is where we're at, right? I know,
2: I totally agree. I do the same thing. We have to. We have to. But I also tell people, so so if if I'm pushed to answer the question, I do say that when you go in for your appointments for patients, right? When you go in for your appointments, write down the symptoms that you're having. Write down the course of them, the duration, the quality. Just because when you go in, sometimes you get super nervous. And so you may just want to refer be able to refer to your notes i also tell people that they should bring in a loved one or a family member with them either for more support or just to make sure like they feel that person can ask the questions on their behalf you know there was this viral tiktok where it was um actually a white health professional he said i want to know why When I go into the exam room with my black patients, they always have someone on FaceTime. I have
0: a question, but I'm afraid to ask it because I don't want to be labeled as a racist. A significant amount of my African-American patients, while I'm doing a history and physical to understand better what's going on with their problem today, they have someone on the phone. A large percentage of my African-American patients have someone that's there in the room, even though they're not there in the room.
2: And everyone was like, oh, it's because... They don't trust you or they want to make sure that there's someone else there to ensure that they're getting great care. So that's like bringing someone else with you. So I feel like as health professionals, we should be okay If people want to bring other people with them, that is fine.
0: It also makes me wonder about patients as they're seeking out providers who are going to provide that culturally responsive care, regardless of whether or not the provider looks like them. Mm -hmm. But what are some of the... Things that you tell people to actually look for, to actually do before even going into the provider's office.
2: There's this informal network that we all have of like, we ask our friends, we ask our loved ones, hey, which OBGYN do you use? Which primary care doctor do you use? Like, try to use your networks or even if you don't have other health professional friends you know, you can ask just your friends, who, who have you seen that you feel like really listens to you, really sees you, um, you connect with? I mean, even I think about my previous primary care physician, she was so, I had her for 10 years and she unfortunately she retired, but she was an older Black woman and literally my appointments with her, we would laugh, cry, like, talk about our families. And then I would also get, you know, I would also get checked up. But it just felt so good. And I found out about her through a colleague. So I think that we just need to really talk to each other, like, be in community, have this informal network about which health professionals do you feel like actually, I mean, really, it's a listening piece. It shouldn't be rocket science, but that listening piece is so huge for patients also, that, that person will tell you what, the follow, what your follow-up is. Like, so I, always, I always say, like, make sure not only do you document your symptoms when you go in for your appointment, you ask, like, what do you think is going on with me? Mm-hmm. What is your plan for me? What is my follow-up? What are symptoms that I should come back for? What should I be looking out for? What are red flags? So those are kind of questions that you should always ask anyone that you go see.
1: So we want to close this conversation. We could go on for days. I just want to, I want to say, reading this book, it was a memoir, history lesson, kind of policy prescription. I love that, the policy wonk in me. And then also really an amazing memorial to, I got to say her name, Dale Gloria Blackstock, an amazing, amazing woman. Tell us why you wrote this book and really what you hope they take away. Yes,
2: thank you so much for that. Yes, so Dr.
1: Dale Gloria Blackstock,
2: the original Dr. Blackstock, was such an inspiration to me and and my sister. And, you know, my mom, she had a very challenging upbringing, um, ended up at Harvard Med School and came back to her community to practice. And so that was the influence that my sister and I, like, you know, we witnessed and we had. And so the work that we do today in terms of like health equity advocacy is really to continue her legacy. So the book is actually a love letter to her. It's a way to amplify the work that she was doing in the 80s and 90s when there wasn't terms like health equity out there, but she and other local Black Brooklyn physicians were organizing community health fairs and doing advocacy, but also using my story and my mother's story to shine a light on these larger systemic issues so that people understand they're able to connect the dots as to why in 2024 we're here today and what we can do about these really appalling racial health inequities.
1: Dr. Uche Blackstock is an emergency medicine physician and the founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equity. Her new New York Times bestselling book is called Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. Thank you, Uche, for speaking with us. Thank
2: you so much, Vita and Maya, for having me.
1: That's Well Now for this week. Our show is produced by Vic Whitley Berry, Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's Vice President of Audio.
0: If you have something you'd like us to cover, email the show at wellnow at slate.com. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Join us next Wednesday as we tackle another health and wellness story. I'm Maya Feller.
1: And I'm Kavita Patel. Thanks for listening.